ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له اشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم اعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما اما بعد we start in the name of Allah the most high the one to whom belongs our praise the one who gives the one who takes the one upon whom we rely in all of our affairs and we send peace and blessings upon the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam and his family and his followers until the end of time ameen uh, first of all because it's a rainy day and because it's a holiday for many people please come in as much as you can it's going to be completely packed today so come in as much as possible I want to start off the reflections today with one of my favorite verses from the Quran a verse which I believe is extremely important and foundational in terms of how we understand Islam and how we understand ourselves and how we look at the lives that we lead and that verse is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says which means you were the greatest nation ever to be brought forward to the people. You command what is good and you forbid what is evil and you believe in Allah. And the fascinating thing, one of the interesting things about this verse is that this verse first and foremost is saying you are the greatest nation to ever come forth meaning you the followers of Muhammad you are the best nation, you are the best people, you have the best guidance not in the sense that you are automatically better but in the sense that you do that which follows in the rest of the verse so the way that Allah describes those people who are the best people to ever come forth are with the three characteristics that follow and the interesting thing about that is that we know and we understand that the thing that defines us at the core is our belief in God. So as people of faith, as Muslims, we believe essentially that we believe in God and that there's one God and we worship that God and that's it. And this is the most primary concern. But yet, when Allah mentions this verse and says that we are the best of people, He says that you are the best of people. Why? Because you command what is good and you forbid what is evil, and you believe in Allah. So the interesting thing about this verse is that the action of commanding good and forbidding evil is actually mentioned before the action of believing in Allah. Which is not to say that it's more important. But it is to say that it deserves to be paid attention to. So when we look at this and we think about a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, which is very scary but yet very interesting, <coughs> where he says, When did the... Nafsi uh, biyadi by the one in whom in whose hand is my soul. He says that verily you will command what is good, and you will forbid what is evil, or Allah will come to the point where He sends upon you a punishment from Himself and then you will ask of Him and you will not be answered. And what I think is fascinating about this is that sometimes we forget and we get into this uh, laziness 
We forget that there's rules in the world. And the rules are very simple. And that is basically you stand for what you have, and you stand for what you believe, or you get pushed over. It's that simple. So what this one thing that this hadith is saying, either you will command good and you will forbid evil, or you will be overcome by so many trials, and it will be because of your own laziness and your own lack of effort, and then you will ask and you will not be answered, because you're the one who messed up in the first place. You didn't do your job. And that's why some people, they say, well, this kind of event, it doesn't do it for me, or the community's not doing anything for me, and, and we're just not where we need to be, and that's why I don't come. Well, what makes you think it's going to change? It's not going to change if you don't come and do what you need to do. Society's not going to change if you don't stand up and share ideas, if you don't stand up and share perspectives, if you don't organize, if we don't organize to show what it is that we believe in, to turn our values into actual, real-life, tangible objects and things, then there is nothing to show for what we believe other than words, which are an important starting point, but they are not an ending point. And that's why I think this hadith and this verse are so important, and this concept is so important, particularly the concept of commanding the good, and also forbidding the evil, but I want to focus on commanding the good. But the concept is important because what happens is that we have a lot of important things in Islam. And when people misapply them, or apply them without wisdom, or apply them without taste, or they get a little bit abrasive in the way that they do it, then what happens is we, we respond to that by building an anxiety towards it. So I'm not, I would not be surprised if, when I said we're going to talk about commanding the good and forbidding the evil, there have to be at least a handful of people in the room that kind of cringed a little bit. Because they've seen this talked about in a certain way, they've seen this acted upon in a certain way, that made them feel like, yeah, I don't want to hear that again. But that doesn't mean that it's not important. That just means that we misapply it. And if we were to follow that same principle of rejecting things because they've been misapplied, then most of us probably wouldn't even be Muslims. Because Islam has been misapplied in a number of ways. So it doesn't change from the principle. The principle is still important, but what we need to do is re-envision it. We need to think about it in a different way. We need to present it in a different way. We need to apply it in a different way than perhaps what we are focused on. So when we talk about commanding the good, we're talking about a number of things. Little things, big things, medium things, individual things, communal things. Uh, but in the end of the day, the point that I want to make is that as long as we work together, the result is always much stronger. This is a given rule. You know, there's even been research where someone can run, they can sprint their fastest, and they time it. And then they'll race against others and sprint their fastest, and they time it, and they will run faster when they're racing against someone else. Because this is just the way that it is. What we can do together is much more than what we can do separated. There's economies of scale, there's things to consider in terms of, of, of employment, in terms of opportunities, things that you can invest in, the things can be done as a group that can't be done as individuals. So when we talk about commanding the good, we're not talking about only you come into the masjid and you think you should pray in a particular way and someone else is not doing it that way and you tell them so. Or that they should dress in a certain way and you want them to dress in that way and you tell them so. Even though you don't know them, you don't know their history, you don't know their story. This could be the first time they walk into a masjid in 30 years and you're going to approach them like that. But this is not the only way to talk about commanding the good. But also to talk about how do we build institutions wherein we can command the good in a larger scale. 
And there's some things in Islam that kind of breed that. So prayer in congregation, for example, should be something that breeds a concept of building institutions around doing good. The prayer itself is an institution that brings us together, that helps us to remind each other. That's actually an institution towards doing good. Zakat, paying the charity every single year out of our savings, that's an institution that forces the doing of good. It forces the support of the poor. It forces the rich to give back to those who are in need. It forces some level of engagement and commanding of good between human beings. So there's a lot of things like this. But the primary institution, and this is the second major point of four in this sermon, the primary institution of doing good in Islamic history is the wealth, is the endowment. And when you read the history of Islam and you read about the endowments that existed in different parts of the Muslim world, you are absolutely shocked. I mean, it's incredible. The endowment, basically, it's, a, it's an institution, it's a method where someone comes, maybe they own some property or they own a business or they own land, whatever it may be, and they say, when I die, I want this business and all of its proceeds to go to X or to go to Y or whatever it may be, and they can split it up in different ways. So the person might have a business that has $1 million in profit every single year. And they say, every single year, after I die, you need to do this. You can hire a manager, the manager's gonna take care of the business, they'll get this much salary, and compensate, whatever you wanna say. And then you say, all of the proceeds are going to such and such. They're going to uh, this charity that helps deal with refugees. Or they're going to this charity that builds homes for homeless people so that they can have shelter when they're trying to get on their feet. Or it goes to this institution that tries to help prisoners who come out of prison to get functioning back in society. Or it goes to this institute that provides books to kids who don't have books or shoes to kids who don't have shoes or whatever it may be. People would actually do this on a large scale. We're not talking about small scale. We're talking about very, very large scale. And most of the major educational institutions that are known throughout history are of this sort. So when we talk about Al-Azhar, for example, Al-Azhar, before the government started taking it over, was entirely run off endowments, entirely independent. All of the stores around the area, many different types of fields in different parts of Egypt, all of the profits of all these things funded teachers and the building, and the students had stipends, and they had places to live. All of this was off charity, and it's, it's for posterity. When you give waqf, it doesn't end. And this is one of the things that brings up interesting fifth questions in the modern world. And this is why Imam Noah, we wouldn't eat fruits from certain parts of Damascus. Because he said, these were actually waqf, and the government took them, so I'm not eating from it because the government took it, and that makes that haram. So he wouldn't eat from it. And you have issues, for example, most of the area around the haram, traditionally, almost all of Mecca, was given as property for waqf, for the hujaj to stay in. So what does that mean about having buildings there, about having hotels there, about all of this stuff? Because that's supposed to be charity, historically. So when you look now at how this stuff developed, it's very, very heavy. For example, in 1812 there was a survey done on Egypt. And almost one-fourth of the land, the, cult the land in Egypt, was wealth. You see what I'm saying? I'm talking about, we're not talking about someone has a small garden and they give it, and it gets like $200 a year. One-fourth of the country was wealth. Meaning what? Meaning it's going to this educational institute, meaning it's going to feed the poor, meaning it's going to do this, it's going to do that. All of the stuff that comes out of it is going to charity. 
Turkey, they say almost one-third of Turkey was wealth, of the land, in the entire place. You have uh, books, you know, books have been written about this, this book, Islamic Civilization, it has a lot of stuff, I'll give you some examples of the things that Waqf was given him. Uh, the construction of inns and hotels for travelers left behind when their caravans left. Or poor people who could neither build nor rent homes for themselves. There were inns that existed, completely charitable. Uh, a regular supply of drinking water on the streets was provided through endowments. Building houses for the pilgrims around Mecca was endowments. Building wells all across the Muslim world was through endowments. Uh, building trusts for the income that was meant for construction and repair of roads, pathways, and bridges came from endowments. Uh, institutions for the disabled, blind, helpless, food, clothes, shelter, hospitals, uh, educational institutions. There were even endowments that would look after the marriage of young people who could not afford to get married. And they would pay their dowry for them, and they would take care of the expenses of the wedding for them. So to imagine how many different, th to, to give mothers sugar and flour when they have young children, all of these things were covered by endowments. So if we want to talk about commanding the good, we need to expand the way that we understand and as long as we live in this little world of how we understand our religious observance, we will not do what we are meant to do in the verse, which is to be the best people to ever come forth to mankind. But when you think a lot larger, think a lot larger, and we're going to get to some examples from modern day America in a little bit, but if you expand the concept of commanding the good, then the question becomes, how do I start institutions and businesses and endowments and all types of things that will absolutely change and revolutionize society? That's the question that has to be asked, and that's the question that was fulfilled through the institution of the Waqf historically, and which we'll talk about in more detail in the second half of the khutbah, insha'Allah. The first thing before we start the second half is an announcement that um, two, two young folks asked me to make today, and Yasmin and Zakaria, they're both in elementary school. And they wanted me to let you, everyone know that they went to their principal at Canyon View Elementary School and they asked for a place where they can pray for on campus, in elementary school. So the principal obliged, and she gave them a space to pray Dhuhr, and now they have Jama'ah every day for Dhuhr prayer, and they have about eight students that come from the elementary school to pray Dhuhr together. So the school can't announce it, so they said, if you can announce it, this is a good thing. And if anyone else has kids at Canyon View uh, Elementary School, then know that there's like a little Jama'ah that they can pray Dhuhr together in summer. Especially these days, because Dhuhr ends much earlier, right? So alhamdulillah, that's a good thing. May Allah bless them and increase them. Point number three is a discussion of modes for social change. Because if you're talking about commanding the good, essentially you're talking about how to change society. That's what commanding the good is. Right? It's, it's commanding the good is changing society. You're trying to affect the world that's around you. So when we look at it, there's two major things that come up in kind of political theory about how to change society. 
One of them is the concept of the public sphere, and the other one is the concept of civil society, and we've talked about these very briefly before. But when we talk about the public sphere, you're basically talking about public space. And how we as individuals and as communities engage that public space, and how that affects people's perceptions of different things. So, uh, and I mentioned this before, say for example, we do some research, we find that there's a stereotype that Muslim men are not family oriented and they don't care about their families or their kids or anything like that. Just say, we find this. Then we do some sort of campaign where we say every so often people are going to go out with their kids to very public parks or malls where they see and they're going to purposely be very good to their kids in those spaces and they're going to hold doors and they're going to do everything else. Over time, this changes the perception of what people think. So this is what you talk about in terms of social change in the public sphere. And social change in the public sphere, I think, is largely uh, dealt with in in kind of an unorganized way. It's largely dealt with by following the Sunnah. To make it very blunt, try to follow the example of the Messenger in every single thing that you do, and you consequently affect the public space. Because you're acting the best way you possibly can in the world around you, and people see you then as an example of how to behave. So this is number one. Number two that I wanted to focus on more is about civil society. Because when we talk about especially democratic countries and stuff like that, the major way that change happens in places like that is through civil society, which is basically organizations and institutions. And sometimes, usually it doesn't include businesses, but sometimes it can include businesses depending on what they're doing. So when we say, how do you change society? then it ties back into this question of what for them, right? Of the endowments. So one of the ways to do that is to be so engaged in civil society that it completely changes the way people think about things, and it changes the ideas that people are engaging with, and it starts movements around concepts that we find to be valuable based on our belief system, which is very, very important. So let me get to the final point then, inshallah. And the final point is in relation to uh, social entrepreneurship. And business in general. It doesn't have to be only social entrepreneurship, but it gets down to how we spend money, and how we make money, and how we think about money. This is really what it gets down to in the end of the day. Because if you are someone who has, say historically, you're someone who has a couple million dollars, and you decide that when you die, 90% of that is going to start this school or this institution that you know is going to be lasting forever, that's an issue of how you look at money. You want the money to be used in a very particular way, and you want it to go towards something beneficial, right? So when we look at this and you think about some of the examples that are out there today, one of them that always strikes me, you know, you go to the grocery store, you're thinking about how you want to have a salad, right? Because you don't want to eat all this junk, nasty stuff that everyone eats. So you want to go and you want to have a salad, and you go to the dressing aisle, and you see all the dressings. There's, you know, we live in America, so everything is overdone. So you see 50 types of dressing in the eye. And you start to look at them, and for me, I always, if I'm the one buying it, I try to buy Newman's Own. Why? Because if you turn the bottle on Newman's Own and you read the back, it will tell you that all of the profits that come out of Newman's Own go to charity. The entire business. The entire business's profits all go to charity. And you can look on their website, they tell you where they send it and everything else. Since 1982, they have given $370 million in charity. Off salad dressing. Okay? 
This is an issue of how you deal with business and how you look at the concept itself. And I know there's people in our community who are very successful in business, and they can pretty much take anything and analyze it and figure out if it's going to work or not. And if they want something to work, they can figure out how to get it to work. So why not start something that works? And it's not even for you. You already have enough money. Start something that works, and it gives to charity. Start something that works, and it does this or that. Another one that's very famous, people are familiar with, is Tom's. You know, the shoes. Um, people are very familiar with Tom's. They buy Tom's and everything else. The concept behind Tom's is that if you buy one pair, someone else gets a pair of shoes in a poor part of the world. Right? So what happened out of this, in the time that they've been running, 10 million shoes have gone to over 60 countries. While they're making money. It's not like the guy's not making money, right? It's not like the business isn't profitable. The business is profitable, and they spent, they've given 10 million pairs of shoes to people all over the world. See the point? Third one is a company I found this morning called Ecomom. So Ecomom was initially starting trying to give organic baby food for parents, and then kind of working into providing organic and good food for parents who are trying to feed their kids food that's decent, right? So one of their goals was that they wanted to feed, they, when they started doing all this research and they were inspired by Tom's and other, other companies, then they realized, you know what, there's a lot of people in the United States that are hungry, a lot of children. Actually, the figure is about 16 million children in the United States are hungry. In, uh, in California itself, it's about one-fourth of children that are living on the, under the poverty line. So the number is actually very high, a lot higher than we realized. So they said what one of their goals is, and this was in 2012, was to feed 100,000 children across the U.S. So for every time people bought food from them, they would take meals to children in areas where people were starving or they were hungry, and they tried to give them these hot meals and meals that would uh, satisfy them. So you see what I'm saying here? Saying if we want to talk about commanding good on a much heavier level than just the, the, the smaller things. The smaller things are also important. Again, they affect the public sphere. They affect the space of the mosque. They affect the place of, of the mall, of the, of the school, of whatever it may be. But also to think on a bigger level. And to draw inspiration from the history of what in our, in, in our history. You know, before we had Dr. Munzer Kaf here, he comes every Ramadan. Dr. Kaf has written a lot of work about what about endowments in Islamic history. If you just search online, you'll find papers by him all over the place on its social implications and how it has to be done and how it can even be applied to the United States today because tons of people have endowments in the US, right? Endowments are all over the place, charitable foundations and endowments. So it's not something that doesn't exist. It's just something that we need to think about and we need to apply our values uh, to how we do business and to think about how we can create alternative modes of economy. Uh, because the reality of it is that we might be doing well, alhamdulillah, especially most people, unless you're like working in Irvine and don't actually live here, you're probably doing pretty well. But that doesn't mean that everyone else is. And that doesn't mean that they're not doing well because they're lazy. Sometimes, really, there's a lot of obstacles against people. And we've also talked about that before. So part of the responsibility of wealth is to use those skills and those applications and those abilities and resources and connections and everything else to try to create resources and opportunities for others. And this is something that's growing and growing in the American society in large, at large, alhamdulillah, and something that we should also think about. The last point <coughs> is that there's an organization selling uh, food today for after Jummah called Sabil Ihsan. And Sabil Ihsan is one of 
uh, it's an organization that kind of grew out of this local community. And it's, it's very small still, but the idea was essentially there were a couple families and they said, look, a lot of times when we give money to Islamic Relief, we give money to different organizations, it's very distant for us. We just write the check or we click the button and it goes. We want to actually deal with people that are here and we want to do it ourselves. So they started this organization and they, they take furniture and, and to, to people who need furniture in their homes. They take zakat and they distribute it. They deal with different cases, mostly dealing with refugees and immigrants and, and so on. But the point is here that you have a group of individuals that took the initiative to start something that would give back positively to the society around them. And this is something that we have to encourage. Now we don't want 20,000 organizations doing the same thing, that's also sometimes an issue. But at the same time, it's not bad to have a little bit of competition in the good. Because it will push everyone to function at a higher level, to, to be more professional about what they do, and to do their job in the best way possible. So inshallah, today you can support them uh, when you buy things on the way out. I'm not sure where they're stationed with, uh, with all the rain and things, but they're probably outside and they might also be in the NPR. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of those who do good and bring good to everything around us. We ask Him to increase us and enter us into paradise and keep us away from His punishment. We ask Him to give food to those who are hungry and shelter to those who are shelterless and to give victory to those who are oppressed. We ask Him to increase us in knowledge and guidance and to bless us in all of our affairs. We ask Him to cure those who are ill and to forgive those who have passed away and we uh, and, and to guide us all in this life and to the best of the next. Allahumma firlana dhunubina wa israfina fi amrina wa tabit aqdamina. Allahumma barikfina wa wahid qulubina wa sufufina. Allahumma alif bayna qulubina. وبارك فينا يا رب العالمين اللهم تقبل منا واعف عنا انصر اخواننا المستضعفين في كل مكان انصر اخواننا المستضعفين في كل مكان افتح عليهم يا فتاح يا عليم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما عليتنا وزلنا علما وعملا صالحا واعتنا في الدنيا حسنه وفي الاخره حسنه وقنا عذاب النار وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا واقيموا الصلاه. Allah, I'm